Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Tuesday. It is November the 26th, and as always, thank you so much for joining me. On today's show, it appears that Interior Health continues to have some difficulty when it comes to retaining physicians in rural communities. Recruiting physicians to communities throughout the region is not a problem, though, but getting them to stay sounds like maybe that is the bigger issue. One community in the spotlight is Logan Lake. Logan Lake has two physicians, however, it will lose both at the end of this year. In about 10 minutes' time, I'll be speaking with the mayor of Logan Lake to see if she has any comments or concerns when it comes to the medical care in the community. And then to end off today's show, I'll be speaking with Interior Health to see exactly what the plan is to recruit and retain new physicians there. And in a little over 20 minutes, I'll have the president of BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. Facial recognition technology is rapidly expanding with the Vancouver Airport being the first airport in Canada to use facial recognition to verify Nexus passengers in lieu of passport checks. What does that mean? Well, stay tuned to find out but to begin today's show the bc teachers federation held a rally at the bc ndp convention on sunday here to talk about now now is president of the bctf terry mooring terry thanks so much for coming on thanks for having me jeff so we haven't talked in about six weeks i guess can you tell me what has really changed for the bctf since then when it comes to you know progress on a new contract and some of these other issues that you're trying to work out Well, since uh, we last chatted, the mediator has the um, employer asked for a report of the mediator be written. It was. Uh, We got it on November 1st. Um, We rejected the We thanked the mediator for his work, but we rejected the report because it just doesn't go far enough to resolve the issues that we have um, in education. And so we are anticipating being back at the mediation table and to resume bargaining in December. So I guess, yeah, you're, you're hoping to be back at the bargaining table next month. Uh, you know, you, what was, I guess, the point then of, of this rally that took place over the weekend? What exactly were you guys as a, as a Teachers Federation trying to do? We were trying to. So um, we had a representative assembly there. Our local representatives are classroom teachers. Um, we were joined by a couple hundred additional classroom teachers from around uh, the province. And we really uh, thought it was important to engage MLAs, to engage uh, conference delegates, and to engage the public um, and tell our stories um, about what's happening in classrooms as a result of the teacher shortage and the underfunding. Now, now at the convention, uh, Premier John Horgan did seem to try to indicate that this negotiation is important to his government, but also hinted, you know, that a convention was no place to bargain. I'm just going to play a quick clip here for Mr. Horgan. What we have is a dispute between parties in a collective bargaining negotiation. It's not a dispute about values. It's not a dispute about our passion, our equal passion for education. So uh, just from that, I mean, you know, John Horgan is saying, you know, there's an equal passion when it comes to education and teaching the youth here in the province of B.C. I guess, uh, you know, how how does the the Teachers Federation feel about statements like that that are being made right now? I mean, given the fact that, you know, you guys have been at the bargaining table for quite some time, since the beginning of this year pretty well, and, and, you know, we're we're still without a contract here, and it's, it's almost December. Well, we're really happy to hear the Premier publicly state his commitment to public education. I mean, that's what they said when they were elected. We believe it's a value they hold, um, but now they need to put their values into action. 
so we have really some significant problems in education in BC. Um, the teacher shortage has lots of negative consequences for students. It means that there are uncertified, unqualified adults in classrooms. It means that uh, non-enrolling teachers like counselors and learning support teachers and teacher librarians are pulled from their jobs when there's no one to fill in for a, a classroom teacher who's away. That all has a really incredibly detrimental effect on students. And one of the reasons why we're having difficulty attracting teachers to BC is our low wages. So there are a number of issues that need to be resolved. We were told at the beginning of this bargain that those issues would need to be resolved at the bargaining table, and so that's precisely what we're trying to do. What, what are the attitudes like right now at the bargaining table? I know you can't get into sort of what the specifics are and you aren't going to negotiate through the media, and I understand all of that, but just, you know, is, is there a growing frustration? Or, or, you know, when we talked in the summer, there was some frustration about the fact that, you know, you were going into a new school year without a new deal. Uh, you know, here we are now uh, a little over two months in, uh, three months in, and, uh, you know, still no deal. Is there any frustration or any sort of shift in attitudes at this point, or is everything still pretty civil? Or, or how can you describe just sort of what the attitudes are uh, between the both parties? What, well, what I can say is that we're, we are really disappointed that we didn't get a deal before the start of the school year. We did not want to go into this school year with this uncertainty hanging over everything. It's not good for students. It's not good for teachers. It's not good for parents. It's not good for anyone. Um, so that, that was a big disappointment. And, um, and we continue to struggle at the bargaining table with the disconnect between the values that the NDP government upholds what the Premier just finished saying in that clip and what's happening at the bargaining table. So when we face concessions at the bargaining table and yet, you know, the Premier is publicly stating how much he values education, that's a disconnect that we've been trying to reconcile. Uh, I'm here with uh, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. So uh, one of the things I did hear you say over the over the weekend was, you know, that you were hoping to raise some awareness about the needs of BC education. You've talked about it a little bit here in our conversation so far. Um, you know, you had mentioned that um, education is underfunded to the tune of uh, about $1,800 per student, I believe was the, the, the figure you had quoted. Um, I mean, do you, do you think there's enough awareness out there when it comes to... to to those concerns when it comes to funding, when it comes to, you know, the fact that there may be unqualified people uh, basically babysitting classrooms at this point in time. Do you think enough people are aware of some of the situations that BC teachers find themselves in right now? We really don't, and that was part of the reason for being um, in Victoria this weekend. We really don't think that the general public has any idea that we have hundreds of uncertified adults and qualified adults in classrooms. That's uh, more um, North Central, North Coast kind of peace uh, region problem. Um, it's also, though, starting to uh, kind of creep into the lower mainland, and there, like, it's a spattering even in metro locals of uh, unqualified folks. You know, the uh, Minister of Education tried to uh, kind of paint it as just a rural problem. Um, even if that's true, that's still a big problem because it shouldn't matter where a student goes to school in this entire province. They should have a certified teacher teaching them, and so um, that is a big problem. Uh, we also think that the general public doesn't understand that education funding has actually gotten worse since our last round of bargaining five years ago, not better. And so we hear the government saying a billion dollars has been put into education. The vast majority of that was court-ordered by our win. Um, the rest of that is um, an increase in student enrollment. Uh, so 
that's the billion dollars. Um, that's why we're still underfunded. So the last time we bargained, we were $1,000 less per student. Now we're 1800 So the funding has actually gotten worse as other jurisdictions have improved education funding. BC has not. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Terry. Do you think that if more people were aware, if the general pub- public was, uh, you know, maybe more concerned when it comes to what's happening with uh, with BC education and with, uh, you know, with the underfunding of students and with the uh, the fact that there is a lack of qualified teachers in classrooms, do you think if if more people were aware of this, that uh, it might have an impact on how uh, bargaining has gone to this point? Uh, you know, if there was uh, a bigger, maybe outside voice that was calling for for some changes to the, to the same tune that you guys are, um, you know, do you think if, if you continue to raise awareness and maybe hear more of a, an outcry from the general population, it might have an impact on the way that uh, negotiations are going? I think so. Like, I, I think a lot of parents don't understand um, how many uncertified folks are out there. Um, and I think that there is an expectation that we elected an NDP government and um, that when we do that, you know, um, public education uh, is more supported. Uh, and so I think people make the assumption that that's happening. Um, and we know it's a value of the government. And so, and, and we are happy that it's a value and we share that value. We just need to see them acting now and that's what's missing. And so, yes, I think if the public is more aware um, that, uh, that we have these issues, that we may have more success resolving them. Is, is there any strike talk that's on the horizon yet from you? Well, that's what I was talking about in terms of, of, of uncertainty. Like when we enter a school year and we have prota- protracted uh, negotiations like we have in this case, that's always an issue. That's always a conversation. And so that's, that's part of why we wanted to get a deal before the school year started. And so we certainly hope that doesn't happen. We certainly believe that we should be able to resolve this collective agreement and bargain, you know, a fair collective agreement that's fair for the system and fair for teachers and fair for students uh, without going on strike. And we certainly hope that happens. Well, Terry, thank you so much for coming on the program. I said I'd have you out of here uh, by the 20-minute mark, and we're almost there, so I better let you go. But thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Right on. That was the president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring. Yeah, talking about some concerns when it comes to a, a contract negotiation there with the province. Teachers, of course, have been without one since the start of this school year. Uh, now three months into the school year, school year, not too far away from the Christmas break, and yet, uh, yeah, still working without a deal. So definitely some concerns there about what the future holds for uh, teachers here in the province. Will there be some strike action? Well, uh, like uh, Terry had said there, it looks like that's uh, a conversation that could be... Uh, you know, happening sooner rather than later, but uh, let's not uh, hold our breath just yet. I guess uh, there's still that possibility that a deal can get done here in the in the not too distant future. So I'm going to hold out hope that that will happen. Uh, but it's definitely going to be a story that we continue to follow here as we approach the new year, as we approach 2020, and and uh, yeah. Uh, definitely a concern for a number of parents and students that uh, you know there there is that potential for teachers to continue to work without a contract, and uh, hopefully something gets done soon. But it. Uh, yeah, we'll have that news when uh, when it comes. We'll we'll break it for you right here on Radio NL. But uh, other issues that are going on here today, we're going to be talking about physicians here in rural communities here in the Thompson Nicola Regional District. Um, Interior Health uh, seems to not have any problem when it comes to recruiting doctors. At least that's the message I'm hearing. But it does have some trouble when it comes to retaining them. And there's a couple in Logan Lake that looks like they could be on their way out of the community in the new year. Well. What's the plan? Is is there a plan in place to, to replace those doctors here in the immediate future? Well, we'll be chatting with the uh, mayor of Logan Lake after the break. So stick around. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. 
listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Tuesday, November the 26th. Recruiting physicians, it can be a challenge in some rural communities, but even more challenging seems to be convincing those physicians to actually stick around once they're there. One community that has some immediate concerns, uh, from my understanding, is Logan Lake. There are two physicians practicing in the community, but both uh, seem to be scheduled to be elsewhere come the start of 2020. I'm joined now by the mayor of Logan Lake, Robin Smith. Mayor Smith, thanks so much for uh, coming back on the show. Good morning, Jeff. How are you this morning? Well, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm pretty good, too. Good. How's things out in Logan Lake today? Oh, other than it being a little bit chilly out there, we're pretty good up here. Yeah, well, I guess it's almost December, so that's uh, par for the course, <laughs> I think, at this point in time. Yeah. We can't complain, that's for <laughs> sure. So uh, let's just sort of get into the meat here. I mean, two physicians, uh, from what I understand, are set to be moving on from Logan Lake. I mean, are, are you worried right now about what that means for, for the community and medical care within your community? Yeah, we've um, we've definitely been through this uh, in the past. It's um, definitely not uh, not the best place for us to be. There's always the goal never to have a gap in service, but um, it looks like it's going to be uh, the case up here, at least for, for a short term, um, until we're able to get another physician in place. So it's always concerning. You know, we don't ever want to have a gap in any service any time that we can avoid it. Um, so you said this is something you guys have had to deal with, uh, you know, in the past, I guess. What, what kind of situations has this caused for you in, in, in past instances? I mean, has there been a, a large period of time where you had had to go without a doctor in the past? Or, or sort of what, what has been the experience when you've had to deal with this type of situation before? Yeah, we, we did. We had a long, long gap in service. Um, and this is going back a few years now. Um, but it, it's a really, really tough thing for a community because people tend to find other physicians that they're comfortable with in the meantime and then trying to get um, people to feel confident to come back to the health center when you are able to successfully recruit another physician. Um, people tend to feel a little bit nervous about um, giving up the physician that they have because we all know they're not easy to find these days. So. It really does make it tough to, to um, convince people to continue to support um, the local health care services, but we do encourage that as much as we can because obviously they can't make a practice if they don't have patients. Um, we are seeing quite a few um, more patients coming recently, more recently, I would say even in the last six months, um, you know, just affordability more than anything, uh, we're finding people are choosing Logan Lake as an option more and more. So when, when these doctors do leave or when doctors have left in the past, I guess what, uh, what has been the interim solution to make sure that, uh, you know, there is still at least some level of care that can be provided to the people of Logan Lake? Uh, well, we do have a nurse um, practitioner in our facility, so I think that they would probably... Um, the interior health would probably increase the um, time that she's spending up here in Logan Lake. Um, we would have some locum, locum coverage also to sort of fill the gaps where we can. Um, and one of the other services that, um, that, that is available to people is the Medeo access to um, physicians online. So there's a few places that and the 811 nurses hotline. So there are some resources out there for sure. 
Um, what what role, I guess, does the community have when it comes to being able to recruit new doctors to the community? Because, uh, you know, Interior Health obviously is trying to, to do what it can to make sure that uh, there are no gaps in service or to limit the, the gaps that exist in service as it stands now. Um, but I would think the community would have a, a role to play when it comes to convincing people to come and set up shop uh, in Logan Lake. So I guess what, what, uh, what efforts are underway from your perspective, from a mayor's or from a council or even just from a, an overall community perspective to try to encourage people to come to, to Logan Lake, to work in Logan Lake, and, and then to live in Logan Lake for, for some, some considerable amount of time? Uh, well, one of the things that we work on, um, really as a community, we have a number of community leaders um, in place in our wellness action group. Um, we've got anywhere from healthcare practitioners, emergency response, wellness, health and youth group, um, our local schools, we've got RCMP, we've got, of course, local government, um, paramedics. So we've got quite a, a large table of people um, actually working on this issue um, quite actively. Uh, we're um, supporting the divisions of family practice and they're supporting us as well um, in trying to assist in facilitating community health planning and all of that sort of thing. So this is some, some of the work that's been happening at a local level. We've got, you know, so many people that, are, that come to the table that are passionate about health care. So we've been sort of trying to, um, you know, determine what our gaps are and try to fill those gaps as much as we possibly can. One of the ones that's kind of um, come out through that process is um, the lack of um, daycare in the community and uh, ret uh, retention of younger um, professionals is tough if they don't have a daycare um, as, a, as an option locally. Um, that's sort of a central thing. So we have been working on a cooperative daycare initiative as one of the things that's come out of that sort of planning process. Um, and there's there's been quite a bit of um, focus on that over the last year and kind of just identifying the gaps and trying to um, work to fill those gaps where we can. Well, Mayor Smith, thank you so much for coming on the program and raising some awareness about this issue and, and filling some people in on, on sort of what is going on to, to handle the situation. Uh, definitely not something that any community wants to deal with, but it is the reality. And uh, best of luck in, in filling those positions and making sure that uh, the community is well taken care of. So thanks so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, appreciate it, Jeff. You have a good day. You as well. Thank you so much. Okay. That was uh, Logan bye. Lake. Bye-bye. That was Logan Lake Mayor Robin Smith talking about some concerns in the community when it comes to uh, two physicians set to leave at the end of this year. Obviously, there is some need for new doctors to come to the community of Logan Lake to fill that gap in service that uh, will soon uh, be in existence. And I will be having Interior Health coming up uh, on the program at around the 50-minute mark. So uh, they'll help fill us in on sort of what their efforts are and what uh, work they are doing to, to make sure those positions are filled here in the not too distant future. Um, yeah, but coming up after the immediate break, I will be talking about privacy and concerns around facial recognition, so stick around for that. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. It is Tuesday. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Technology capable of scanning a person's face and linking them to a database of thousands of other people has been introduced in Canadian airports and shopping malls. Do you know just how prevalent this technology is and, and how that personal information can be used once collected? Well, earlier this month, the Vancouver International Airport announced that it would become the first airport in the country to introduce facial recognition technology for Nexus cardholders who return to Canada from abroad. Uh, facial recognition kiosks will identify passengers enrolled in the Nexus program, replacing the airport's existing iris scanners. Here to talk about this is the president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association, Mike Larson. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Jeff. Good morning. So I had you on uh, with me uh, a few months ago, I believe it was, and, and we spoke about the issue of, of traffic cameras essentially taking pictures inside your vehicles to see if you're you know, a distracted driver on your phone or whatever. Uh, and we had a number of concerns when it comes to that proposal, but uh, uh, you know, that issue was brought up at Edmonton um, after a presentation sort of uh, from, a, from a technology company there. Um, so that's sort of a separate issue, but there are a number of concerns um, when it comes to recognition as a whole, um, you know, facial recognition, these technologies technologies actually being able to identify who you are. Um, so how concerned, I guess, should we be uh, from a general public population? Just uh, could, Should we be concerned about recognition technology that, that is being used and, and it's sort of the, the fact that it is rapidly growing in, in, its, in its use? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I think this is one of those technologies where it is absolutely justified for uh, the public to express a lot of concern. Uh, this is a situation where instead of having a uh, a very fulsome and robust public discussion about what this technology is, how it's used, its potential implications, uh, limits and barriers that should be put around the collection and analysis and sharing of information, rather than doing that, uh, what we see are a number of pilot projects. We see a number of initiatives, both in the public and private sector sectors that have been rolling out. Uh, what's happened in the privacy community is, you know, many of us are trying to be uh, trying to catch up uh, and, and jump on these issues as they're arising because there's very little for uh, an announcement of, uh, of the implementation of these things. So lo lots of um, potential implications arising from these technologies. And, and I, I, I don't mean to be um, flippant when I say that it, it has the potential to simply end privacy in public spaces. Um, this is really the next big horizon of surveillance technology. We already have tremendous amounts of personal data that is collected throughout all aspects of everyday life. And what this technology allows uh, users to do is to connect that data with um, a, a form of biometrics, our facial recognition characteristics, uh, that we simply can't get away from, right? So, you know, you don't change your face every day as you're walking about. So the potential of this is that you are, uh, when you're caught on a facial recognition system, uh, simply visible to uh, anyone who has the capacity to run that uh, image uh, against a vast database of personal information. Um, huge implications for privacy. Um, and, and, and as I said, a lack of robust public discussion. So we're seeing this um, in, in the Vancouver International Airport. Now, this is the way these kind of technologies often roll out. They start off with something where people look at it and think, well, that's kind of innocuous. Nexus cardholders already have used uh, retina scans, for example, which is a different form of biometric technology. Uh, and international airports already use facial recognition scans. So certainly the argument coming from proponents of this is that, well, this is just the next step, right? This technology is inevitable. We're just, we're just kind of rolling this out. Um, that's how this starts. Uh, but before you know it, you do see technology like this being used in shopping malls. You do see this being used in streetscape forms of surveillance. And there's lots of discussion in the U.S. Uh, about the use of facial recognition algorithms in body-worn cameras on police, which basically makes each police officer uh, a surveillance system uh, and every member of the public subject to uh, surveillance and scanning. So, again, huge implications. 
so uh, a lot to unpack there in that response, but uh, I want to just ask, this might be a bit of a dumb question, but just for you know anyone who maybe doesn't understand or, or, or doesn't uh, you know fully appreciate why this might be a concern, if, if uh, you know, just a general person, you know, no concerns, no issues when it comes to the law or anything along those lines, um, why should I be concerned about the issue of facial recognition? Like, I'm, like what purpose would it serve, uh, you know, if I'm just a regular law-abiding citizen who, you know, does, just goes about my day and I, I don't have anything to worry about? I mean, why is, should facial recognition still be of concern? Uh, yeah, I appreciate that question. This is this is basically this iteration of the classic, if I had nothing to hide, what do I have to fear, uh, question that comes up around all forms of surveillance technology. I suppose from a kind of a philosophical standpoint, you know, one of the principles that's supposed to be embedded in, in all sorts of our systems of justice and due process is the idea of the presumption of innocence. That in order to stop you and ask for your ID, let's say, or to run a search on you, or to, you know, uh, otherwise investigate you, uh, authorities are supposed to have some reasonable grounds to suspect that you've been involved in some kind of wrongdoing. Uh, now, what this kind of technology does is flip that around. It basically says, well, everybody's constantly going to be uh, um, uh, run against databases uh, subject to forms of identification checks, almost as though you were wearing your driver's license or passport kind of on your forehead. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll sort out who the, who, who the people of, of concern are afterwards. So I would say at the first point, uh, there's this inversion of the presumption of innocence that I think is, is very dangerous in a democratic society where that's supposed to mean something. But let's go beyond that. Um, this technology is, as it stands right now, um, imperfect. And I'm not arguing for it to be perfected, but a lot of research that's been conducted in the U.S. and elsewhere has found that the false positive rates for facial recognition technology are actually fairly high. And that means a situation where a, uh, the cameras and the algorithm um, falsely identify someone uh, as someone of suspicion or someone whom they're not. Uh, more than that, we found in the U.S. research that your likelihood of being falsely identified using uh, under uh, facial recognition technology is greater if you are a woman or a person of color. Um, so these, these algorithms, which are fairly sophisticated machine learning algorithms, are imperfect. They get things wrong. Uh, and obviously, if you have a camera, let's say at an airport uh, or, or elsewhere, uh, that's flagging you as a person of interest, that can have serious implications. Uh, regardless of your behavior, simply because your face has been run against a database and an error has been made, now you're pulled aside. Um, so that's another concern there, is just the imperfection around the technology. Um, we see elsewhere in the world, facial recognition technology is being used on people who are engaged in the expression of freedom of speech and also dissent. Uh, so a situation where people are involved in a protest, a march, demonstration of some kind. Uh, if you look around the world, uh, these are the kinds of situations where increasingly you see authorities uh, in countries we would reasonably call authoritarian using facial recognition technology to identify people who are expressing the wrong kinds of ideas and the wrong kinds of thoughts. Uh, and to think that that couldn't or wouldn't happen in Canada, I think, would, would be naive. We already have lots of evidence of people involved in legitimate dissent uh, who are subject to extensive surveillance. And this would just make it impossible, really, for people to be part of a group uh, engaged in that kind of political activity. Everyone would be recognizable as an individual. And one more point on this, I would say, is that with any kind of technology that has privacy implications, one of the keys is to have proper regulation. Uh, and, and this is something we should simply expect as Canadians. 
And I can say uh, with this kind of technology, we simply lack that. Uh, our existing privacy laws, provincially and federally, uh, have not been updated to account for the massive implications of what happens when everyone's identifiable in public spaces. Uh, so before we move forward with this, before we can even consider is it going to be harmful or not, we need to have a serious conversation about what reasonable regulations might look like. Uh, here with BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association President Mike Larson, um, I just wanted to go back to one thing that you had said there and just double check. So you had said that uh, people of color or women are actually uh, more likely to be falsely identified uh, when it comes to you know whatever the case may be? Yeah, absolutely. So there have been a number of studies that have been done in the United States on uh, on the use of uh, facial recognition technology and on hit rates, and done elsewhere in the world too. Um, uh, Georgetown University has done some studies on this. The Electronic Frontier Foundation actually does a good job of collecting and compiling information on this. All these technologies um, work by basically converting um, a digital image of a person's face or a video image of a person's face into a series of data points. And these data points, like a fingerprint, are uniquely um, identifiable to particular individuals. No two faces uh, are exactly alike. And so theoretically, this would mean that if you've got a, um, a photograph of a person and you've, you've used the algorithm, um, you should be able to identify that person. But what we find is that there are, like in any kind of technology, there are false positives. They mm -hmm. could arise from uh, people looking, you know, um, not directly at the camera, um, people um, at an angle. Uh, but when the, the research has been done, we, we do find that certain groups are um, more likely to experience false identification. And interestingly enough, in, in some cases, these are groups um, that are already subject to um, uh, disproportionate levels of surveillance. Yeah. So this yeah. kind of compounds that issue, especially in the U.S. And that's why I should just note, in the U.S., I think they're a little bit ahead of us in this conversation in some, in some areas. Uh, in California in particular, your, your listeners might be interested to look into uh, what's happened in San Francisco, where as, as uh, a result of concerns around the privacy implications of facial recognition, the city of San Francisco has simply banned the use of this technology by police. They've put a three-year moratorium uh, on, on any kind, uh, uh, and this is actually at, at California at the, at, the, at the state level as well, three-year moratorium uh, on the use of uh, facial recognition technology and, and police body cameras, for example, just because they don't want to be in a situation of rolling out technology finding out that it has these kind of civil liberties implications and then having to walk it back. They've said, we need to sort this out properly before we even start. And I think that's a good model to follow. Yeah. I just, it just uh, caught my attention. You know, essentially, even, even robots are uh, somewhat sexist and racist here in this, uh, in this day and age. Just that conversation that seems to be popping up. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, even with technology, it doesn't go away. Um, one more question here for you, Mike. I guess just sure. once we see these, uh, you know, these types of technologies roll out, we're seeing it sort of start slowly when it comes to uh, you know, being used at Nexus booths. Um, but I guess once this technology does start to roll out and become more prevalent, just how difficult is it to roll it back? Well, I think it's going to be uh, difficult because one of the arguments that will be made around this is that it's now a matter of established practice. Um, and it's going to roll out differently in different settings. So we have um, different rules governing the collection and use of personal information in the private sector, let's say in a shopping mall, uh, versus in, in, by, uh, by government bodies in public spaces. Uh, in, in the private sector, there's the general idea of consent. So if people um, give or give implied consent to the collection of information, uh, uh, then um, things that otherwise wouldn't be permissible can happen. So uh, what I'm concerned about are these mass private spaces like shopping malls, like stadiums, like uh, many you know, districts where uh, uh, people are going into uh, pr 
private uh, enterprises and consenting just as a right of access uh, to um, an incredibly intrusive form of surveillance. And I think that um, all of this is designed to run kind of passively and quietly in the background. The whole promise of facial recognition technology is not in your face. It's doing essentially the same thing as stopping you and asking for your ID, but you may not be aware of it at the time. Uh, so I think that this will roll out faster than we recognize, um, and we'll be in a situation of it becoming normalized um, and, and you know, in some ways unremarkable uh, before the serious implications are, are well known, uh, which is a good reason to, to pause and think carefully before proceeding. Uh, well, Mike, uh, unfortunately, that does wrap up our time, but I think I could talk about this for another 20 minutes. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we can't do that today. But thanks so much for joining me and talking about this issue. I think it's uh, something that people should be aware of that is happening. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be having this conversation, I'm sure, down the road again. So thanks so much for coming on, Mike. I appreciate your time. For sure. Always a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks. Right on. That was the uh, president of the BC uh, Freedom of Information and Privacy Association, Mike Larson, talking about facial recognition technology with, of course, Vancouver Airport announcing that it is the first airport in Canada to start utilizing such technology. Uh, let's switch back to what's going on in Logan Lake There, here. Uh, two physicians are set to leave the community at the end of this year, and uh, there's no immediate plan in place when it comes to replacing them. Or maybe there is, but I'll have uh, Interior Health on to answer those questions after the break. So stick around. Radio NL 610 AM. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Today is Tuesday, November the 26th. Earlier in the show, I spoke with the mayor of Logan Lake. The community is likely to lose its two physicians at the end of this year, and I'm sure there are some who are concerned about what that means for the state of medical care within the community. I'm joined now by Interior Health's Executive Director, Clinical Operations, Rural Acute, and Community uh, at Interior Health. It is Lisa Zietz-Zanata. Lisa, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. So let me just start by kind of asking about the difficulty in attracting doctors to come and work in some rural areas here of the, the Thompson-Nicola region. Is that just overall, is that a challenge for interior health? Well, I think that it's not just interior health. Um, well, we're seeing it here in our region. Um, across BC, we're finding difficulty in bringing in enough family practitioners. So it's a systemic problem, but of course, in areas where you have uh, two or three physicians, it becomes more of an acute issue. Now, one thing that I have heard said, uh, speaking specifically about Logan Lake, but I'm sure this is uh, kind of a, a common statement that might be made throughout any rural community, uh, it's maybe not as difficult to recruit people to come to the community, but it's very difficult to, to retain them. I guess, is that a sentiment that IH feels as well? Is it difficult to just, you know, keep people around for a long period of time? Well, I think that um, we're seeing the ongoing use of our practice ready assessment program and we've had great success with that. Um, the term of the service agreements for practice-ready uh, physicians is three years. So generally in some of our smaller communities, we have people start through the practice-ready assessment program and some stay, but then again, some do leave, leaving us a need to recruit again, which is the situation that we're in right now in Logan Lake. So we had two physicians there who've been with us for three years and have done amazing work. They've announced 
that they'll be leaving the community effective December 24th. So our plan is right now we have an NP in Logan Lake. We will be extending the days of service for that MP so there isn't a disruption in medical care. And we're working on bringing in a family practitioner. There is someone interested in Logan Lake. And we, we expect, hopefully, that they'll be in by the spring. So the stopgap measure is to have a nurse practitioner in there. And then moving forward, we'll have both a nurse practitioner and a physician in place. Okay. Um, so that kind of answers the question of what the interim plan will be in the community of Logan Lake between uh, December 24th when those doctors are set to uh, uh, end their, their, their time in the community and then what's going to happen until a new physician is found. Uh, is there any sort of timeline that's in place? I mean, I guess the goal would be to have a, a, a new doctor in place immediately, but that uh, probably won't be the case. I mean, does, do you have any idea how long it typically takes to fill those positions once they are vacated? Um, so we already do have a physician interested, and we're hoping the physician will be able to start in March. But we, of course, will keep the community up to date on the timeline that we're looking at. Okay. Um, are there other communities that are at risk of having this problem in the immediate future? Are you aware of any other rural communities that are you know, uh, you know, looking ahead to, to when a doctor might be leaving, or is there anything that is on the horizon? we do um, quite frequently operationally is we look at where our practice ready assessment physicians are placed. Um, we look at the timeline for the three years. We work with them in advance to determine if their plans are to stay within the community or if we need to begin recruitment. And then we look to recruit about a year out. And, and when we talk about recruitment, it's generally the divisions of family practice that work on physician recruitment, but we work very closely with them to ensure that we've aligned the health authority supports with the division um, in their recruitment efforts to make sure that we're working in tandem and jointly so that the physicians are supported when they enter a new community. Um, going back to the specific situation in Logan Lake here, is it uh, unique, I guess, that both or, or two physicians are vacating or leaving the community at the same time? Um, you know, I'm just curious if that's something that has happened before or if there's generally like a, a plan to make sure there's some sort of staggered time frame between pe when people might start and leave. Uh, it just seems um, interesting, I guess, that both are, are leaving at the exact same time and that uh, it might, might pose some unique challenges, I guess, for a community. For sure, and I think there's always the goal that we stagger our, our recruitment efforts. Um, in this case, they both started at the same time and their term of service is over at the same time. We're recruiting an additional physician now. Um, we may move to recruit a second one depending on the volumes and the needs. And I agree with you, staggering is always the best option because then you have people remaining in community and that generally is the approach that we like to take. The, the fact of the matter is here we have two physicians willing to come to the community at the same time, which put us in, in the position of both of them leaving because the term was over. Yeah, it all, it all makes sense. Well, Lisa, I, I guess uh, um, you know that pretty much wraps up what I had for questioning. Is there anything else that you want to add on this issue before I let you go? Is there anything that uh, you think uh, people might want to be aware of while I have you on the line? Um, well, I, I guess I, I want to let people know that this is something that 
not only the interior, but BC is taking very seriously. We're moving into advanced primary care planning for all of our communities to determine how to put a robust primary care system in place because we know that that's, you know, for the amount of time we spend in a hospital, which is a little tiny blip in our lives, really the true need is in the community to provide good, solid primary care services. And that's something that the province is working on with us and it's happening across BC. So I'm hoping in the years to come that the system we put in place will enable us to work through transitions, knowing that physicians work a little bit differently than they used to before, where we have someone go into a community and stay for their entire career. Um, people are sometimes more mobile no. now. And while we certainly do support physicians going into a community and staying, if we can't have that on a routine basis, we will put in a supportive system to enable the community to have access to primary care. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show with me. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to fill us in on what the situation is and, and what the plan is moving forward. I really appreciate you taking the time. Not a problem. Take care now. You as well. That was Lisa Zietz-Zanata, the Executive Director, Clinical Operations, Rural Acute, and Community with interior health. Well, that about wraps things up for me here. And just a quick note that I'm taking the rest of the week off, but uh, the uh, living stud here, Jason Hewlett, will be taking over to close out the week. So make sure you tune in here uh, every day at 9 a.m. So on that note, I want to thank all my guests joining me. Uh, I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Monday at 9, but the Jeff Andre Show will be back here tomorrow morning at 9.